0: Our sermon text today is in Mark's Gospel. It's Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. It's a short, relatively short passage. And I'll ask, as is our custom, that you stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Give ear unto the reading of the word of God. Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Amen. Well, as you see the title uh, this morning uh, of the sermon, it's an old familiar saying that familiarity does what? It breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. In some ways, in some ways, that's kind of the story of our text, isn't it? For the people in the synagogue, where, where is the synagogue? It's in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Nazareth isn't named in our text, although we do know that's the town that he considered his hometown. We know that by looking at Luke chapter 4 and other places. Um, but the people in that synagogue, in that town, probably were more familiar with Jesus than anybody else that we've met in the Gospel of Mark up to this point. Better than the disciples knew him? They knew him longer. Put it that way. The people that were in this synagogue, by and large, knew Jesus better than anyone else that we've come across in this gospel so far. Some of them probably knew him, knew Jesus, ever since he was a young boy. They've known him since he was yea high to a grasshopper, whatever the saying that we sometimes use. They knew, as we see in our text, they knew his family members by name. It's, it's not one of these deals where we do it today. I, at least I do this. You, know, you see somebody and you, their face kind of rings a bell, but you don't, you don't know where you know them from. You, I forget. I'm terrible with names. These people knew the names of his entire family. You're almost surprised they don't name the sisters. You know They name his brothers and his mother, but not his sisters. So they, they knew him since he was a young boy. Many of them did. They knew his family members by name. They knew his family's trade, didn't they? What do they call him? The carpenter. The carpenter. They knew his family, Joseph and him, maybe his brothers as well, that their family trade was carpentry or construction. They knew firsthand from experience and observation his sinless character, his godliness and integrity from his youngest days. Not a single one of them could ever accuse him rightly of sin. Imagine that. Not one. Not one time. He knew no sin. And in our text, the cherry on top, so to speak, they get to hear Jesus Christ himself preach and teach in their synagogue. Does it, does it get any better than that? I mean, he could have skipped, he could have stayed in Capernaum, he could have gone to Jerusalem where all the big boys went. What does he do? He takes a detour and comes back home. He comes back to Nazareth and even reads and preaches in their synagogue. And yet that, that familiarity that they had with Jesus, even from his youngest days... What what do they do with it? They twist it into an excuse for rejecting the very Son of God, the only mediator between God and man. Yeah, we know who he is. Who's, Who's he? They twist that familiarity, that thing that should have been a privilege to have. They use it as an excuse for unbelief. And in fact, their familiarity with Jesus actually led to contempt for him. Usually when we use that saying, we don't actually mean contempt. We just mean that you kind of take something for granted, you don't appreciate it for what it is. In our text, their familiarity really did breed contempt for him. In these verses, opening verses of Mark 6, those people in Jesus' hometown synagogue display for us in our text, in these short verses, very real contempt for Christ. If you think about it for very long, it's a disturbing and it's a frightening thing to contemplate. The hardness of heart that we see in these verses. Of all the people that we come across in the Gospels, these are the people that should have believed in Jesus, and yet they didn't. The hardness of heart is something frightening to think about here indeed. This text brings to mind something from one of the other Gospels. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. There we read this. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's Nazareth. It's everywhere else in Israel as well for the most part. But it really is true of Nazareth. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's putting it mildly. They flat out rejected him is what they really did. It also brings to mind Isaiah chapter 53, possibly most likely the most familiar text and chapter in in that great book of Isaiah. It says in the first three verses of Isaiah 53, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now that, ultimately, what is that talking about? The cross. People hid their faces from him at the cross. But it also, in, a, in a, maybe in a slightly lesser way, is about this kind of thing as well. He was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. He's no big deal. Who is this guy? Who died and made him God? Who died and made him boss? Why, why is he the one that's ruling over us and talking to us and telling us, teaching us the scriptures? That's kind of the attitude that was brought to him, even though as As that verse, that passage from John says, he was in the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world didn't know him. The world didn't recognize its maker. Even in his hometown, to use the words of Isaiah 53, his own people, his own townspeople did not receive him. Even in his hometown, he was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and they esteemed him not. It's hard to imagine for us, I think, at least it is for me, that so many people who saw Jesus on a daily basis and observed his godly character and the love that he had for everyone with whom he came into contact, his love for his father, those who heard him preach and teach, those who saw him do mighty miracles, that they could still reject him. They could still shake their head at him and say, Who is this? What manner of teaching is this? Where did he get these things? Where did he get all this wisdom from? And these mighty works, you know, we're going to see in our text the familiarity that these people and Jesus had, uh, the people of Nazareth had of Jesus Christ, um, that it didn't result in faith, did it? You'd think it would, but it didn't. It did not result in faith. And I think, Lord willing, we're going to see this morning at least a few lessons that you and I need to apply to ourselves from this text as well. As we're using a lot of old sayings, there's another old saying you're probably familiar with. it It's this. You can't go home again. You ever hear that saying or use that saying? There's a book by that name. You can't go home again. What, what does it mean? It means a lot of things. But it means, you know, like, like me, if you leave home for any length of time, you, you move away, you set up a new home, you live somewhere else, if you go back home, what do you inevitably find? It's just not the same. You know, all your 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 sentimental notions of your hometown. I have, maybe you do too if you're not from here. You think of, of central Pennsylvania. Oh, it was like this when I grew up. I know, it's been a while. If I go back now, some of the same places are there. Some of the same, you know, restaurants and smells and, and pleasant things are there. But there's a lot of things that just aren't the same. A lot of the same people are no longer there. The whole town is like a different town. Most of my hometown probably wouldn't recognize me these days. They might not recognize you in your hometown if you're not from here uh, either. Yeah, so things change. People change. Jesus comes home to Nazareth in our text here this morning, but he doesn't they don't roll out the red carpet. And they kind of seem like they do, but they really don't, do they? They do let him speak in the, the synagogue. He doesn't really get the welcome that you would expect him to get in his hometown. If any place should have rolled the red carpet out, it would have been should have been Nazareth. Verses 1 and 2, the first part of Mark 2, Mark writes this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So he, he's not coming by himself. It's clear that he has followers now, his disciples and others. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, I don't, uh, I don't know if you, sometimes you notice what's not in a text, and you have to be careful with that, that kind of thing. But what don't you see here? You don't see any fanfare. You don't see particularly any mention of crowds, do you? This might be the first section in Mark's Gospel where you don't see a crowd, other than the wilderness during the temptation. If you've been following along in the book of Mark, you would remember that so far, pretty much everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds showed up out of thin air. He couldn't get away from them. Everywhere he tried to get away from the crowds, crowds followed. And when he came back from getting away from the crowds someplace else, crowds showed up crowd showed up again. They followed him everywhere he went. He could not get away from them. Call it an argument from silence if you want, but here in Nazareth, in Jesus' hometown, it really does seem like the first time that Jesus goes anywhere and a crowd does not show up. He does not seem to draw a large crowd here. Mark makes no mention of it, and everywhere else he has. I think that's significant. Jesus came to his hometown with his disciples in tow, and on the Sabbath, what did he do? He began, verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, in Luke chapter 4, which many, including myself, believe to be a parallel account to this one, Luke tells us in verse 16 of Luke 4 that it was his custom, quote, it was his custom, Jesus' custom, to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and even to read from the scroll of the Old Testament scriptures in the, in the synagogue. And what was the response of the people who heard him when he went there and taught and read from the scroll? Verses 2, the last part of verse 2 to verse 3, it says this. Many who heard him were astonished. When's the last time you were astonished at a sermon? Don't answer that. Uh, Many who heard him were astonished. Other than looking at the clock, right? Uh, Where did this man get these things? I mean, they're shocked. They're they're all looking at each other, and what, what in the world's going on here, right? They were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters? You can almost picture them going like this. Are not his sisters? They're right there. Aren't they here with us? And then what does it say? They took offense. They took offense at him. The people in that synagogue in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth were astonished by the teaching of Jesus. They were astonished at a few things. One, they were astonished at what he said. Mark, as is Mark's custom, doesn't tell us what he said. Mark almost focuses not at all on the actual words of Christ, he focuses on action. Luke tells us what he said, and we'll get to that in a minute. They were astonished at what he taught them. You know, where did he get these things? They were astonished by the wisdom with which he taught them. Where's this wisdom? You know, where did he get this from? What is this wisdom he's he's got? Where did he get it from? He didn't get it here, might be the implication, right? We don't have schools like that here. Nazareth was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And where did he get the mighty works? They were astonished at the mighty works that he had done. They heard of the mighty works that he had done. And they couldn't figure out how somebody whose hands worked on wood, that those same hands could do miracles. Now, so far, so good. It sounds like they're very impressed. They're astonished. Hey, they acknowledge everything about what he did, don't they? They acknowledge his teaching, in a sense. They acknowledge the wisdom. Of his teaching, don't they? They don't say, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. They say, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get all this from? That's that's the impression you get from that. But despite all that, what does it say? They were were astonished and they were offended. Their astonishment was that of unbelief, not of faith. There's There's a kind of astonishment that's of faith. Where you see or hear something, you're overcome, you're astonished, but it's faith. You believe what you hear, you trust in the Christ that you're hearing of. They were basically asking, what was their actual response? They're basically saying, "Who, who does he think he is? That's the kind of astonishment that they had. Who does he think he is? Now, how do we know this? How do we know that this is actual contempt Besides just being offended. Notice the way that they, these people in the synagogue referred to Jesus. Notice what they don't call him. Did they not know his name? They knew everybody else's name in his family. They don't use his name. Verse 3 makes clear to us again that they knew exactly who he was. They don't say, your face rings a bell. Hey, weren't you that kid that... So-and-so. They rattled off all the names of his family just about. Mary, his mother. They named J- James, who was the, the author of the book of James in the New Testament. Joseph, Judas, the author of the book of Jude, most commentators say. And Simon, four brothers and his mother, and don't mention his own name. They don't mention his sisters. They mention his family trade, referring to him as the carpenter. The carpenter. So they were very, very familiar with Jesus by their own words. Their own words condemned them, that they knew him, they knew who he was. And calling him the carpenter, you know, the, the carpenter, it's, it's almost certainly a put-down. Not that being a carpenter is a bad thing, not that they thought manual labor was bad, uh, but it's, you know, it's as if, you know, where did you go to school to get this stuff? Last time we saw you, you were... Picking splinters out of your hands. You're, you're a manual laborer. You're not supposed to know anything. You didn't go to the right rabbinical school. As if, as if he went to some school that they knew of, then they would accept his teaching. They really wouldn't, would they? You know, incidentally, I won't belabor the point, but the fact that they mention brothers and sisters, even brothers by name, I think that, that clearly refutes the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. You can see that the Scripture doesn't uphold that. The Scripture tells us different. He had brothers and he had sisters. Well, let's take one, be careful to note one thing about, about Jesus being called the, the carpenter here that there's nothing demeaning or dishonorable about manual labor. There's nothing wrong with working with your hands, getting dirt under your fingernails. Jesus, the Lord of glory, worked with his hands. He worked with his hands. Moses. What did Moses do before God used him to deliver Israel from Egypt? He worked as a shepherd. Exodus 3, verse 1. King David. What was King David doing when Samuel finally found him? He was the young guy watching the sheep. 1 Samuel 16, 11. No less than four of the apostles that we read of in the book of Mark... In chapter 1, what, were their, what, what do they do for a living? Fishermen. Pretty sure fishermen work with their hands. They get their hands dirty and get their hands bloody. And yet Jesus called them, of all people, to follow him and even to become his apostles. Some of his chief apostles, frankly. Not, you know, if you want to rank apostles, three of those four were fishermen. That were at the top of that, that list. Working with your hands honorably in a lawful calling is nothing to be ashamed of. Not only that, but it doesn't preclude you from being used by the Lord Jesus, does it? In some ways, you could be forgiven for thinking that the less impressive a person's personal resume is, the greater the prospect there is that the Lord might actually use them, might actually use that person. We should be mindful that the Lord, as the scripture tells us, doesn't look at things the way that we often do. What does First Samuel 16:7 say? The Lord sees how? Not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We focus on the outward too much. God doesn't. God isn't fooled by the cover of the book, so to speak, as we are. You and I, I think, tend to be impressed, I speak for myself at least, by all the wrong things at times. We're impressed by quote-unquote successful people. We're impressed uh, by, you know, things like that. There's nothing wrong with success. You don't, you don't denigrate success. But we, intend, we tend, I think, to be impressed by big things, by showy things, by flashy things, by outward things. We measure things that way too often. But those things are not typically where you're going to find God at work. You can't measure where God is at work by big flashy things. Those are not the things the Lord looks upon, and they shouldn't be what we look upon either. Well, lastly we see there in our passage in verse 2 that the people in the synagogue were astonished, but ultimately what was their what was their real reaction to what he, to what he was saying? offense the, the word in the Greek is it's the word that we get scandalized from that gives you more maybe of a feel of what, of what, it's, what it's getting at they could not believe their ears you know we use the word offensive in, in a lot of different ways they weren't just offended the way you and I might think of it oh I didn't like that joke or I, don't, you know, I didn't like what so and so said it was, it was anger they couldn't believe what he was saying to them. Now, why? why? What would he possibly say that would be so offensive? What would Jesus possibly say that could cause them to be scandalized? Note, note that Mark, I think note this carefully, Mark doesn't just say that they were offended by what he said. He doesn't say that, does he? Look again. It says they were offended at him or in him. Nothing personal, right? Now this was personal this was it was if it was anything, it was personal. they were offended at him, at his person, at who he was, not just what he says. Luke's parallel account in Luke four, I think gives us some helpful uh, information here. we don't we, you don't want to preach Luke when you're preaching Mark. you want to preach what Mark says, right but I think it's helpful to look at what mark. Uh, what what Luke says about this same, this same account or the same incident. In Luke 4, verses 17 to 21, it tells us what Jesus said. It tells us the content, the text, so to speak, of the sermon and the, the very brief sermon that he apparently gave. It says this, in Luke 4, 17 to 21, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Can imagine the looks on everybody's faces. The, wait, the, aren't you supposed to say something? You know, besides just read, read the text, right? It says, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Maybe they, they didn't have watches, but if they did, they would have been, hello. You know, you, you missed something. You forgot the sermon. Did you leave it at home? That's every pastor's nightmare, by the way. Where's my? I have to wing it. No. That's probably your nightmare, too, if I have to wing it. Um, and, and what does it say? He began to say to them, here's, here's the sermon, shortest sermon in human history. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine the looks on their faces. He reads a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 61, rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant and sits down. And when everybody turns around to look at him, he says, oh, that's, that's me what I just read. That's about me. You know, we, we can talk later. He read from Isaiah 61, 1-2 to and his basic point of his sermon, as short as it was, was to let them all know that that passage was about him. Isaiah wrote about me is what he was telling them. What's he saying? He's saying to them, I'm the long-awaited and prophesied Messiah that's been foretold throughout the entire Old Testament. It's talking about me. Not, not, hey, in a sense, there's some application to me here. He's saying, that what I just read, that just happened. You got to be there for it. What does he say there? Isaiah, Isaiah speaks of someone who was, quote, anointed by the Lord. The word Messiah means anointed one. There's no mistaking what he's getting at here. He's saying, you know that, all that stuff about the Messiah in, in the scriptures? That's me. No no one would have claimed... David wouldn't have claimed that. Isaiah wouldn't have claimed that. Moses wouldn't have claimed that. No one in their right mind would claim that. Except Jesus. Because he is. It's exactly who he was and is. They were offended at him because of his claim to be the Christ, the Messiah. But that's exactly who he is. And Isaiah 61.1 says he, he was preaching... He was anointed to preach good news... Think about that. They were offended at good news. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you know that's not that unusual. The gospel, that's what gospel means, good news. People are offended by the gospel all the time. He preached good news of salvation to them, and their response was offense, was being offended and rejecting him. Now think about this for a moment. They knew Jesus. They knew the guy talking it wasn't like some stranger rolled into town with his, his entourage that they didn't know from Adam and got up, unrolled that scroll, and said, that's me, thank you very much, and sat down. They knew him. They knew Christ, they knew Jesus, but they still rejected him and turned their backs on the salvation that's only be, to be found by faith in him. The people who had every reason to believe in him Use that knowledge of him as an excuse to harden their hearts in their unbelief. JC Ryle writes this, he says never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. You know the scripture elsewhere says can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, pick a town you don't like and, and insert Nazareth there. It's what possible what good thing could possibly come out of Nazareth? Ryle says, No place never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For 30 years the Son of God resided in this town and went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years he walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life, but it was all lost upon them. They were not ready to believe the gospel when the Lord came among them and taught in their synagogue. They should have known better. It's, it's, it's hard to fathom the hardness of heart in this, in this town when Jesus was there. What is, how does Jesus respond? We know their response. It was, they were astonished, right? How was Jesus? What did he do in response? It says in verses 4 through 6, Mark writes, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. It's one of the only places maybe in scripture you're going to find where Jesus, this isn't the right word, where Jesus was impressed. Not the right way, of course. You, you, they, could, they could say, we amazed Jesus. Jesus. We made Jesus jaw drop, but not for the right the right way. You know what does Jesus do here? He uses another proverbial saying that a prophet, and make no mistake, that's exactly what he was. He was much more than that, but he was the ultimate example of a prophet. He says a prophet is not without honor, except where, in his hometown, among those closest to him. Remember, again, familiarity breeds contempt. Mark. Mark even adds that Jesus, in verse 5, could do no mighty work there. Everywhere else it's like, bring me your sick, bring me your demon-possessed, and watch this. Jairus' daughter, in the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, what did Jesus do? Raised her from the dead. Remember, though, everybody didn't get to see it, did they? The people that were mocking and laughing at him, he, he threw them out. You don't get to be here for this. The parents and some of the disciples were the only ones that got to got to see it. Now, we shouldn't take Mark's note about Jesus not being able to do any mighty work there as somehow indicating a lack of power or ability on the part of Jesus Christ. He's still the Lord of Lords. He's still able to do all kinds of, of miracles. But But it wouldn't be proper for him to do miracles there in response to their unbelief, would it? It's been, it's been kind of the way in Mark's Gospel that uh, we get it backwards. We think those seeing is believing. Well, according to Jesus, it goes the other way around. You believe, then you get to see. And if you don't believe, you don't get to see. He's not a parlor magician. He's not here to do tricks to impress anyone. He's not going to put a show on for someone's unbelief. He couldn't put a show of miracles on before those who rejected him in unbelief. So the the people in his hometown, these people had the great privilege, the great advantage of having Jesus himself grow up in their town among them, maybe for 30 years or so. But they used that privilege that no one else enjoyed. They used that advantage that no one else had but them as an excuse for unbelief. Maybe now you see why Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He couldn't believe their unbelief, is kind of a way, kind of a way to put it. You know, No wonder that he moved along once again, didn't he? You're not going to believe? On to the next towns. He didn't stick around beating his head against, against the wall. And I think you and I can learn some lessons from those people in Nazareth. The first and foremost, we should never settle for familiarity with Jesus. We should never settle for familiarity with Jesus. Let us never be content just to know about Jesus. You better know about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. You don't get to make up whatever you think about him. But you can know all about Jesus from the Bible and yet not actually know him at all. Again, you don't get to make up what he's like. You don't get to use your imagination. But you can know all about Jesus and not actually know him at all. You can grow up with all the privileges and advantages of being raised in the church, being baptized in the name of the triune God, hearing the scriptures taught and preached every week, partaking of the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, and enjoying the fellowship of God's saints, and yet never know Christ. None of those things, as good as they are, they're good things every last one of them, None of those things is a substitute for a real and living faith in Christ. If you have a living faith in Christ, you will be involved in all those things. But those things are the fruit and result of faith, not an excuse or substitute for them. Knowing Christ is the essence of eternal life. A well-known verse, some of you I'm sure have this memorized, John seventeen three. It says, this and this is eternal life. What, what is eternal life? How do you define it? How did Jesus define it? This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Knowing God, knowing Christ, is eternal life. It's what it's all about. If you don't know Christ, you don't have eternal life. The two are two sides of one coin. So I have to ask this morning, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Not just know about him. Not just be able to pass a quiz. You know, if we had a 10-question quiz, maybe fill in the blank, or maybe multiple choice, we like those better, right? And had all the all the different facts about Jesus. Maybe you could nail it. Maybe you could get 100%. Maybe if it, if it was 100 questions, you'd nail every one of them. But you can nail every one of those questions and not know Jesus. Not really know him by faith. So do you know him? Do you, not just know about him, but do you actually know Jesus Christ by faith? Have you trusted and are you trusting in him alone for salvation do not mistake familiarity for faith turn to jesus christ by faith if you have not yet done so and have eternal life in knowing him amen let's let's pray heavenly father we read this passage and we we don't even know what to think about a lot of it we we recognize some of the same things we know that in some ways, it feels at times that we're surrounded by people who are familiar with Jesus but don't know him, who have been raised in churches, even good churches, and have been baptized in his name and have enjoyed the fellowship of the saints, the teaching of your scriptures, the Lord's Supper, and all kinds of advantages that some people never, never even dream of having and yet stay in their sins and trust in their own righteousness and trust in their own church attendance, and trust in being a part of the right church, or whatever it may be, or trust in being a minister, trust in, in doing religious things, and yet never trust in Christ. We ask that you would give us grace. We believe help our unbelief. Give us grace to not settle for familiarity with Jesus, but to seek to know him better and better, those of us who know him already. make Give us grace by your spirit to make that uh, the goal the one goal of our whole existence to know you better to know and love and serve you above all things, and we do ask that if anyone here does not yet know you that you would open their eyes even today that they might turn to Christ and live, we pray for our neighbors, especially here in Hermona, but also our loved ones, wherever they may be, that don 't yet know you, that you would open their eyes that they wouldn't that they wouldn 't despise your anointed one, that they wouldn 't reject him due to familiarity and think nothing of him, but they would see who he is, that you would open their eyes to perceive the glory of Christ and look to him and have life in his name. For it's in his holy name and precious name that we pray. Amen.